Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being, reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Server Member Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Das, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Metta Hour Podcast with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, visit www.beherenownetwork.com slash Sharon. Enjoy listening. Hello. <laughs> so how many of you believe in Mercury in retrograde? Yes. <laughs> I've already had a funny day. I don't even know if it's in retrograde. Is it in retrograde? It's in total regression. Okay. Like, yeah. So when that happens, you know, things kind of go awry. So I've already had this very funny day. I'm doing a, uh, I think it's a six-week course for Tricycle Magazine on my most recent book, Real Love. And... Uh, part of it is this question and answer session with, with people who are who have joined in the course. And uh, I looked at my calendar today to make sure it was one o'clock and not noon. 
that I had to do something technological on my computer to enter this room to be able to answer questions in real time. And sure enough, it said one o'clock. And, uh, you know, Lily was going to come over and help me with the technological side of it. And and then somehow I, I at 12, at 11.35, I uh, looked at my email and there were all these panicked emails about, no, it's at noon and people are already in there. And like, so I had to figure it out all by myself. And I got in there. It was, it was kind of exciting, you know, so. But then, and then uh, some hours went by and Roshi started riding planes late. Got on another plane. Oh, no, that one's even later. Going back to my original flight. And she's in Chicago, I think. And that usually means walking from gate to gate, like the other end of the universe, you know. And then uh, sitting on the tarmac. So I thought, oh, it's Mercury in retrograde. Here we are. It's how things are. But we're going to have a wonderful time together. I love seeing Frank. I was so excited about that. And Roshi is, uh, of course, a very old friend. And uh, whenever we see her, that'll be exciting, too. Um, we're going to start with a meditation. So if you could just sit comfortably as comfortably as you can. See if your back can be straight without being strained or overarched. And you can close your eyes or not, however you feel most at ease. And we're just going to more fully arrive. See whatever you're feeling in your body. For everybody, it's like getting here is a thing, you know. And so we bear the residue in our bodies. So you might feel stress and tension and kind of being in a rush of some kind and just relax. Just let it go. See if you can settle your attention on the feeling of the breath, the actual sensations of the breath, wherever you feel it most distinctly, the nostrils, the chest, or the abdomen. You can find that place, bring your attention there, and just rest. And as your mind leaps to the past, to the future, judgment, speculation, whatever it might be, once you recognize that, here, too, is a kind of relaxation or relinquishing. You recognize that your attention's left the feeling of the breath, and rather than judge yourself or berate yourself, see if you can just let go gently, and with some kindness towards yourself, return your attention to the feeling of the breath. We just let go, and we begin again.
Thank you. We thought as a kind of um, warm-up, we would speak a little bit about this territory of courage because it plays such a big role in Roshi's book. You know, it's a beautiful book, by the way. Uh, and, uh, and she's such a courageous person, you know. Uh, 76 years old she is this year, just a few days ago. And she's about to take off for the Himalayas where she does a nomad clinic every year, walking at 12,000 feet, bringing medicine and treatment to people who would otherwise not have any access to medical care. So kind of in honor of her strength and courage uh, might be a good place for us to start. Um, so I'll just, you know, I'll get us going here. I, one of the ways I think about courage, one of the first things that comes to mind for most of us is well, what we normally think of as maybe warrior courage, you know, someone being brave, a soldier or a fireman or somebody working in healthcare, saving a life. And this is one level of courage. I, I think there are others. We'll get to them, I think. But, um, you know, it can be generated by loyalty and comradeship and deep love and intention. And it can there's also a shadow side to it. It can also be manipulated. And um, people can be coerced into all kinds of actions under the name of warrior courage. So when I was coming up in practice, Sharon, and I don't know how it was for you, but we got a lot of talk, I remember, about spiritual warriorship. And, you know, lots of things in the old Buddhist texts about the armies attacking you from the north, the south, the east, and the west, and to, to, to train the mind, to, to, to tame the mind is more difficult than defeating all those armies. <laughs> yeah. And to be honest with you, this never worked for me. The, all this imagery never worked for me. I wondered how it was for you. Uh, really? Yeah. <laughs> um, I would say it, it did work for me uh, to a certain extent. Uh -huh. You know, like um, when I went to India and I began practicing meditation, I'd never like dabbled in meditation before or done anything. So like structure and commitment yeah. were actually very good uh, boundaries for me. But after a while, it, it was, uh, I, I felt like I was just generating fear in a way, that it was, it was, it was not enough. It was, it was kind of gotten off. Yeah, I mean, there is a need for some kind of particular kind of strength, right? We need it in life and we need it in meditation, something, some steadfastness that allows us to stick with what we would otherwise like to run away from, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so there's that kind of, there is a kind of courage that's really needed in that, you know? What I've come to feel... Um, just in terms of meditation practice, now more, you know, with a lot of experience with different teachers and different styles, is that I think a lot of systems almost like center around a particular virtue or quality, huh. and they, they really strengthen that quality. And once that's established, then they start working with uh -huh. the others. Because after all, in the end, it's a balance. You know, it's like resolve and surrender. And it's, you know, energy and calm. Uh, there are many, many, many qualities. And in the end, it's all about a certain kind of balance, which is really this exquisite kind of balance. And I somehow ended up, not always, I had, like Meninger, for example, one of my teachers, um, uh, was always kind of like setting us free. And 
my other teachers were very structured. Meninger was like this free spirit, and that was a good balance, you know. Mm -hmm. But um, many of my earliest teachers were really about resolve, you know, sit without moving and mm -hmm. um, all of that, which I could never, ever, ever do, by the way. Uh, and then I remember one year at, at the Insight Meditation Society, we brought this very great um, Burmese master named Tampulu Saida mm -hmm. to visit. And he was, he was really incredibly renowned. And he, uh, we were sitting up in one of the rooms on the uh, second floor where we had this furniture. I think Joseph's aunt or somebody had given it to us, like these plush upholstered couches and chairs and things like that. And we're all sitting on the floor. And... And somebody asked Tampulu Saito, they said, well, I'm, uh, I experience physical pain when I sit, and I wonder what I should do. And Tampulu Saito said, as soon as you start to feel pain, you should get up and go sit in one of the chairs like that. And he pointed <laughs> to one of those like really overstuffed, you yeah. know, upholstered things. And I thought, where were you? You know, when I was like in India sitting on the floor, and they wouldn't let me move, and I was crying, and like... And he went on to explain that his, um, the thing he was most concerned about building as a foundation was tranquility. Hmm. And if somebody had a deep enough tranquility, then they could think about resolve and energy and effort and hmm. discipline and all those other things. And it just was never my lot in life to kind of have a teacher like that. You know, I'm thinking about just everyday courage. Mm -hmm. I mean... You know, I, I was just speaking with a friend last week who had to facilitate a memorial service for his son, for his best friend's daughter who fell off a cliff. And, and a fellow called me a little while back, and he was trying to get up the courage to go into a maximum security prison to meet the man who had murdered his mother. Mm -hmm. And not long ago, I was visiting with a woman who's was sitting with her dying mother with her newborn baby. Yeah. And then, so that all sounds pretty dramatic. Mm -hmm. And then there's just the courage that it takes some people to get out of bed in the morning. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think it's easy to think of courage as this highfalutin thing, you know, or something that requires some high level of mastery. And, um, and I, I sometimes want to just talk about the courage that it takes to just be a human being in our world today. And this feels different than the warrior courage to me. This is like courage of heart, you mm -hmm. know? Uh, the ability to not so much fearlessly meet everything in our life, but fearlessly open to everything in our life. Mm -hmm. And to, uh, um, well, like there's a guy, I just thought of him. His name is Julio, and he's a, a nurse's assistant. And he works in a big metropolitan hospital. And his job is after there's been a procedure, a code, where the person's chest has been cracked open and there's all this mess on the floor and emergency services and, and the person has died, it's his job to go in and clean up the room. And this guy, you know, he's so amazing to me. He, he walks into the room and the first thing he does is survey the whole room Look at everything, the chest of surgery stuff that's been opened up, uh, the, the uh, cloths that are on the floor, the person who's intubated on the, on the gurney that's now dead. 
And after surveying the whole situation, he walks over to this person, he leans over them and he says, I'm going to try and wash away all dust and confusion. Hmm. And then he goes about straightening the whole room. And after the room is in order, then he starts to bathe the man. And, you know, the nursing supervisor comes in and says, we need the room now, hurry up. But all the other nurses on the floor know that he's doing sacred work. And somehow they protect him. Yeah? They say, it's okay, we'll, we'll cover for him. Yeah? And I think this takes a certain kind of courage mm-hmm. for Julio to do that. Not only to, to do that particular, those particular set of tasks, but to have the courage to go slowly in a system which is going a million miles an hour and courage to bring the sacred into an environment that might feel otherwise mechanical mm-hmm. or institutional. Yeah. So I, I just, it's my experience that there's these extraordinary people that are walking around on the planet that we never notice, really, mm-hmm. in a way, that are doing courageous acts all the time. And often it fe- feels like this courage of heart that I'm speaking mm-hmm. of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that's very true. Even uh, to get through a day for many people is an act of courage or to show up. Or uh, often if people tell me they're in AA or NA or something Mm. like that, they do it with a kind of almost embarrassment. And I think, hey, you're doing something hard every single day. Look at that. Right. You know, I have tremendous admiration for that courage and steadfastness and so on. And and there's, um, I picked up Roshi's book when I was, we're just walking through the back. It's a secret reception or the hidden reception. And um, because she has a phrase that I've heard her use uh, that reminded me, sometimes it takes courage to say no. Yeah. And to have a boundary or to realize I I can't do this in precisely this way anymore. Something else, some balance has to shift. And her phrase is pathological altruism, Mm -hmm. which I think is an amazing statement, you know, because... Uh, one of the things she's showing is that there are these states that we admire and we yearn for and we work toward, and sometimes they have a shadow side yeah. when it's out of balance, when it's extreme. And so altruism, which, you know, is this tremendous sense of connection and redemption and, you know, uh, uh, a holistic way of living has a shadow side, yeah. you know, which is this pathological altruism, this inability to have a boundary or find some balance or consider ourselves in some equation, and it's too much. So I think courage takes so many forms. Yeah, well, you just brought in a really good piece, which is it takes clarity, right? Yeah. It takes the ability, the ability to discern what's the appropriate action here, what's the skillful action in this particular case. In the case of pathological altruism, it's this feeling of getting merged with people or feeling like i got to do it. Codependency is an example of pathological altruism, yeah? Like it's all on me, i got to do it, yeah? And sometimes, you know, when I, um, I mean, you are vastly more experienced in this realm than I am, but I have a feeling when I meet people who work in hospice, yeah. they tend to be happier than a lot of people I know <laughs> who work on the edge of suffering in some way. And maybe it's because there's not that sneaky feeling of like, I've got to make it okay because something is not going to be yeah. as planned as, you know. When we were 15, 16, 17, we don't necessarily think about dying, yeah. you know, unless we belong to We Croak or, you know, <laughs> which you can talk about. Um, you know, and, and so I, I'm always amused at the title of the Bill Moyer show you were on, you know, something like 
dying on our own terms because for many of us, if we had one choice in life, it would be that that's not going to happen. Right. You know, and so the fact that we're doing it on our own terms is a little bit funny anyway, although I know what he meant. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, you know, and so there's something, I, I wonder if there's something about working in an environment where you don't ultimately feel I'm going to be able to fix it and it's up to me that actually uh, releases us in some way. Hmm. I think there is something about just the letting the suffering be in the room. And no matter what the shape of that suffering is. Well, today I was talking to someone about a woman that I work with. You know, we, we, hospice is a beautiful, it's almost missionary work in a way. And there's lots of romantic stories about how well it all turns out. And, um, and it does often. You know, dying is messy. Roshi and I talk about this all the time when we teach together, and it also can be transformative and beautiful, but most of all, it's ordinary. Everybody's going to die. Nobody gets out of here alive. I mean, maybe tonight you will, but I, I don't even guarantee that, really. <laughs> There's a woman that I, I remember working with. Her, her mom, she and her mom were very estranged, and this young woman who was in her 30s dying, Hadn't spoken to her mother in quite a while. Her mother had been very abusive to her in many ways. And so this young woman went into a kind of state where she was somnolent, not sleeping most of the day, not responding, not eating or drinking anymore. And um, her mother showed up. And her mother came from across the country to sit by her bedside. And the mother sat at her bedside and quite um, sincerely apologized for everything she'd done, all the hurt she'd caused, you know, and, and really asked for forgiveness. And it was touching to see this. But then a remarkable thing happened. This young woman sat up in bed like a rocket, straight as a board, and looked straight at her mother, and she said, I hate you. I've always hated you. And then she died. So how do we keep our heart open in that kind of hell, you know? You know, I think when, when fear speaks, courage is often the answer, you know. I, all of us were suffering, those of us witnessing it, the mom, you know. And, and, you know, it's our worst nightmare, right, those of us that are parents. But there was something also about it that was extraordinary and that it was truthful. And while it was a harsh truth and told in a harsh way, it was actually really important to this mom. I worked with her for six months afterwards, and that experience really helped the mom to deal with just how tough their life had been and what had led to that abuse and, and, and discord between them. It was actually an important part of that mother's healing, actually. So sometimes courage requires us saying something that doesn't go over well. Or, you know, as Roshi was saying, to say no, you know. So I, I think that, um, you know, where does that come from in us, do you think? Where does that courage come from in us to say, to meet what is challenging or to open our hearts fearlessly to what we would rather run in other direction from? What's your experience? Where does it come from? Heartfulness, right? Isn't it the same word? Yeah. Yeah. Heartfulness. 
I'd say heartfulness, I think, and ability. Um, uh, I would say, in a way, faith, in the way that I use the word faith, uh-huh. not in the well, sense tell, of tell doctrine. Us how, tell or, us how you use that. Yes, yeah. I will. Okay, I read good. a book on it. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> just going uh, um, to... So in the Buddhist tradition, faith means to offer one's heart, mm-hmm. to give over one's heart. It doesn't have to do with belief or or doctrine, or um, being like a true believer. It's not like a commodity that you either have or you don't have. And if you don't have, you're condemned in some way. It's a process of of giving over your heart. And one of the main factors is realizing that's a very precious gift, mm-hmm. that your heart is not to be given over lightly or unthinkingly, you know, to someone or something. And so um, that ability to move off the sidelines mm-hmm. And to really make that offering, to uh, try something, to mm. um, to move into the center of possibility, not, for example, just to uh, buy a book, like, say, your book, and think this would be really good for my cousin, you know, <laughs> but to think, what might this mean for me? Is that kind of movement mm. toward, you know, I'm going to see what it's like when I try to make it real. Because uh, it's very easy to be a bystander in one's own life. I think the culture really promotes that. Where you know we're on TV or whatever we're doing all day, and and so we're kind of removed from the the lived experience of something, and and we're just sort of watching it as though we could change the channel, you know, just like that. And so, uh, in faith, I tell the story of um, I was having a conversation with a psychiatrist, not Mark Epstein, different psychiatrist in New York. And uh, looking back, it was sort of a funny conversation because it was a little bit reductionistic. So the the conversation was about what's the single most healing element in the psychotherapeutic relationship, as though there were just one, you know. Mm. So so the psychiatrist said, uh, it's love. If you put any good therapist up against the wall, they'd say it's the love in the room. That's the single most healing element. And then I said in response because I, I was in the process of writing faith and I was thinking about it so much. I said, well, for all we know, the single most healing element in the psychotherapeutic relationship is the fact that someone showed up for their appointment. Mm. You know, they got out of bed. Beautiful. They're willing to try. Mm. Uh, they didn't know what was going to happen at that appointment. You know, maybe it's been hard for them, but they showed up anyway. Mm. You know, so assuming it's not court mandated or something like that, that is what I was calling faith. Is that, okay, going for it in some way, and, and it's learning that, learning that gesture. Uh, we don't have to have all the answers, that we can do a little bit mm-hmm. toward the eradication of suffering, for example. Mm-hmm. We don't know how to make it all okay, but we can do a little bit. We can show up. We can be present. Or when you were talking earlier, I thought of a friend of mine who was kind of grief-phobic, mm-hmm. and uh, it just terrified her to be in a situation where... Um, someone had died or if, you know, like a friend had lost a family member or something like that. So we were uh, a friend, a very close friend, um, mutual friend had lost a family member and a bunch of us were going to the memorial service and she said, I can't go. And I said, why can't you go? And she said, well, I might say the wrong thing. I don't know what to say. And I said, I hardly doubt anyone's going to remember ever what you said or didn't say, you know, just show up. Like, just appear there. But we have that kind of fear, yeah. you know, like, I've got to do it right. It's not going to be enough, you know. Uh, 
And so doing even a little bit toward that in that gesture, I think, is, is gives us a lived courage. Mm. Yeah, so, I mean, that's... This, I, have to, I realize I've got lots of questions for you. Yeah, One is... Uh, you know, what gives rise to that? You know, what, what, what gives, what's the motivation for that, so to speak? And the other is, I mean, really what you're speaking about is taking a risk. Yeah. Actually, you know, yeah. risking, really risking to live our life, to step into our life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what gives rise to that? What gives rise to, I mean, you, you have an interesting uh, specialization. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what made you start um, the Zen Center Hospice? Or... I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I would say I don't know either, uh, for me, you know. I, you know, I, I, most of these things in our life, they come out of, you know, some experience that went well or didn't go so well, you know, either one of those. And that becomes the motivation, right? Because you're trying to either, you know, cultivate, as, you were, as your teacher was saying, uh, a virtue, and or you're trying to heal an old pain. And in my case, it was both of those. But, you know, I, I was just thinking about this. There's a woman, one of the most horrific things in the world for me are school shootings. They are by far the most painful thing for me to, to study. And so I make a practice of reading everyone I can. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, we don't always get all the stories. Yeah. You know? there, there's one that happened in, in Oregon. And there was this gym teacher, Janice Reagan is her name. And this kid comes to school with a gun, young boy. He starts shooting the gun wildly. It ricochets off the wall, hits one kid in the leg, and winds up shooting another young girl. And this teacher, Janice Reagan, a gym teacher, walks straight up to this boy. Not with some kind of bravado. Not with confrontation. But comes right up to him and looks him in the eye and persuades him to give her the gun. And, but then she does the more remarkable thing. And she holds him. She wraps her arms around him and she holds him, and then she makes this promise to him. She makes a promise that she will go with him with the police, because she knows he's likely to get mistreated. And she will go to him through every, she went to every trial that this kid was part of and showed up for this kid in a way that nobody had ever showed up for him before. There was another scene like this in a school in Bakersfield, California, where a kid comes to school again, you know, loaded with automatic weapons, and he comes to a biology class, and the teacher stands in the doorway, again, not confrontationally, but determinedly. And through some magic, we don't know, really, the kid turned over his rifles. And I read an interview with the teacher's father. And the teacher's, the the, the interviewer said, how did your son know how to do that? And he said, oh, my son knew the boy. And the boy knew my son. And I thought there was so much in that simple statement. My son knew the boy, and the boy knew my son. He wasn't saying just that they were familiar with each other, they saw each other around school. They knew something about each other. They could see themselves in each other. And because they could see themselves in each other, they could, they, could, they could meet in a different place. And so for me, there's something in this courage piece that has to do with a deep sense of belonging also, a recognition 
of our deep sense of belonging mm -hmm. that allows us to sometimes do things that we wouldn't otherwise be too terrified to do, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. and, and, and faith is a motivator for that, for sure. And, and love is certainly a motivator for that. Um, and sometimes it's just very practical. It's just, this is what needs to be done right now. And so I, I, I'm, again, I want to just point to, and we, I bet you we could go around in the room here and we could hear a courageous story from everybody in the room. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I do this sometimes with nurses. I say, I want you to tell me a courageous act that you did. And they first, they can't think of a thing because their idea of courage is so, you know, extravagant. And I said, okay, let's get, let me give you a scenario. You're in a restaurant. Somebody starts choking. What do you do? And every one of those nurses could tell me exactly what to do. And most of them had done it. Yeah. But they didn't think of it as an act of courage. Yeah. So I would bet that every, if we were to go around the room, everybody in this room could somehow share with us uh, an experience of courage, courage of heart that we've been talking about. There's another layer to this that I, I want to bring into our conversation, which is maybe a deeper level of courage. And, and this is what you teach all the time, so I want to hear from you. And it's the courage of vulnerability. Mm -hmm. The really the willingness to be completely stripped away, defenseless, mm -hmm. actually. And mostly that scares us. Mm -hmm. I think mostly what we think of as vulnerability is our defenses against vulnerability. You know, the fear that we could be hurt. But in my experience, vulnerability is just openness mm -hmm. in a way, like porousness or something like that. Mm -hmm. So could you speak about this vulnerability and how that, like, how does that show up as courage? Uh, well, I think of vulnerability as honesty. You know, huh. It's like truth telling. Wow, that's very good. And um, thank you. And, uh, wow. you know, and in that way, it's like acknowledging how things are. And uh, it's, that's not always easy because we have such tremendous conditioning of, even just cultural conditioning of distortion, you know, hmm. and, uh, hiding or calling something something else or nowhere may be more prevalent than in the realm of dying, you know. Yeah. Um, and so I was thinking of that also when you, uh, when you were talking about acts of courage, I thought if we went around this room, probably everyone, uh, you know, upon some reflection, could think of a time they really went beyond their personal conditioning. Mm -hmm. You know, because I, I realized I went uh, to the University of Virginia some years ago um, the nursing program there had gotten very interested in meditation and was using it in a lot of ways. And, and they have a hospital and a cancer wing. And I did a, a presentation on the cancer wing. And I realized that my whole life, my whole childhood, you know, growing up, you know how some languages are tonal, like the word is exactly the same uh, as meaning a, a different thing. But if you say it with a high pitch, you say it with a low pitch, it actually has a totally different meaning. So I realized I thought my whole life that cancer was a word that needed to be whispered, <laughs> that you never said it out loud, you know. You say, oh, so-and-so has cancer, you know. And I thought, that's just how it was. And everyone was, like, saying it out loud on this ward, you know. Like, yeah, I was like, ah, what are you doing, you know. Like, that's not how you say it. You have to say cancer. Uh, you know, and, and so I saw it myself that, uh, the consciousness it would take to just say cancer, mm. you know, or um, 
maybe this is not going to have the ending that you would really like to have it have or, uh, you know, to be present in, in a full on way was the most truthful thing. Mm. And and that's vulnerability. It's empowered, I think, because it is so truthful. And and it, it doesn't leave us alone because we're that's also the realm that brings us together. You know, mm. when we're. Uh, trying to deny what is or pretend it's something else or we're excusing it or, or we're, you know, lost in any of the embellishments we might make to an experience, um, that's a different, you know, then we feel very apart. We're trying to explain away something to somebody else. But when we just say this is how I see it, you know, or this is how it appears to me, then we can actually come together. And... I mean, you're describing it in such a matter-of-fact way, which I really appreciate, actually. I, I love that you're speaking about it that simply. Um, so what is it that gets us so terrified about doing just that? Well, I mean, I think we're, you know, I, I could say conditioning, which is also a matter-of-fact, you know, yeah. because uh, that's a lot of stuff for most of us, you know, yeah. like... Um, you know, one of my favorite sayings to take apart is it's a dog-eats-dog world. Because uh, what a really stupid statement that is, you know. But <laughs> but I would certainly, you know, look at my own conditioning. And I think the conditioning of an awful lot of people. <laughs> that, you know, we're taught, don't take care of anybody else because they're not going to take care of you. Mm. And, you know, you're on your own. And, you know, it doesn't matter who you harm on the way up. You've got to get up, you know. And... Uh, it's a very powerful habit-forming way of thinking. And not everybody has the capacity by any means to take a look at their thoughts. So if I matter of fact, it's probably 45 years of, you know, like, oh, yeah, look at that, you know, again. Um, as you know, you know, yeah. the years count, actually. I was uh, teaching in Germany at a... German, a Japanese Zendo in Germany. Now, it doesn't get more rigid than that, right? <laughs> it was very formal. Very formal. Everything was formal. And we had a question and answer period after a Dharma talk, and there was a couple there who had been squabbling, really having a hard time with their marriage, actually. And they... Um, they basically were really so hungry at this point, like, help us, show us something that will get us out of this madness that we're stuck in, this, this wheel of torture that we seem to be going round and round. And they said, you know, what, do we, what should we do when we're really angry? You know? And there's no one right answer for that. But I said, because I, I thought of this when you said dog eat dog, I, th I said, you should practice what my dog does. And she said, what does your dog do? And I went out in the middle of this very formal zendo. Everyone was sitting in black with shaved heads. And, and I laid down on the floor on my back, and I spread my legs, and I spread my hands like this. I said, this is what my dog does when he doesn't want to fight. He shows his most vulnerable self. And um, maybe that will help. Yeah. I, I think there's a lot of courage and the willingness to be vulnerable. And maybe it's the, I actually think it introduces us to in, the invulnerability of our nature, mm -hmm. you know, to the deepest, more essential characteristics of our nature, which isn't so easily hurt or, or damaged or 
maybe doesn't even die. Yeah. Oh, is that too? That which yeah. doesn't die. What is it? Wecroak.com. Yeah, we. I was telling her um, earlier. Some of you have heard of this app. This app for your phones called Wecroak. Do you know about it? Oh, I, I did a podcast with them today, so it made me think of it. Wecroak. You can get it on your phone. And what it, it doesn't have any advertisements or any great any extras. It just sends you a message five times a day that says, "Remember, you're going to die." That's it. That's all it does. I mean, I think there's an there's a inspiring quote that follows it. But basically the idea is, I think it actually is inspiring because basically the idea is you're in the middle of a fight with your partner, you know, or you're screaming at the traffic or you're, you know, just came back from a horrible business meeting. And this comes up on the screen and says, remember, you're going to die, you know. And it kind of gives you, pers- gives you some perspective about your situation. So you can get this. It's called We Croak. It's 50,000 people have signed up for this. Can you imagine? Yeah. 50,000 people have signed up to get this message. That's how far away from dying we've become, that we need to be reminded about it. You know, there's a story. I'm just looking at Roshi's book. There's a beautiful story in her book about, you might know this, actually, the story of Lieutenant Chris Hughes. Do you know this story? So we've been talking about these different kinds of, of, of courage, you know, of, of warrior courage, of heart, of vulnerability. And, and um, so there's this guy, he's a lieutenant, and he's on duty in Iraq, outside of Baghdad. Young lieutenant, kind of a surfer guy that finds himself now in Iraq. And he's gone out, and he's supposed to try and find this particular imam in a small village outside of Baghdad. And um, when he arrives with his, you know, small group of men, you know, eight or ten men, uh, people pour out of the mosque that's there, and they start raging and screaming and yelling and moving toward them. And they were furious. And this lieutenant did the most remarkable thing. (laughs) He said to his men, take a knee. Take one knee and kneel down. This crowd is rushing toward him. Take a knee, he says. And then he does, takes this, you know, there's a reporter that's, that's embedded with this group, and he's sure that, you know, the next Milai massacre is about to occur. You know, someone's going to shoot somebody, and all kinds of nonsense, you know, horrible things will happen. So this lieutenant says, take a knee, and the crowd is still rushing toward him. And then he does this thing that's almost a biblical kind of gesture. He takes his rifle, and he lifts it over his head, and he points the muzzle of the rifle toward the ground, which is something you would never do. And there's men look at him like he's out of his mind. Like, what are you getting us into? And the crowd stopped at this gesture. And then he said to his men, smile. And, you know, here's all these guys with heavy armor and tattoos, you know, and he said, smile. Now get up slowly and withdraw. And they got back in their Humvees and they drove away. This reporter who was embedded with them later tracked down this Lieutenant Chris Hughes, is his name, in the Midwest somewhere. And he, because he wanted to know, how did you learn how to do this? He said, you know, did you get this in your army training? 
And Chris, you said, no, I didn't get anything like that in my army training. He said, well, what did they teach you to do? He said, well, they taught us to, uh, to shoot, a, shoot a round of bullets into the air. He said, the problem is when you do that, the next thing you have to do is shoot someone in the chest. And he said, we were there to try and meet this imam, and I thought that what was needed was a gesture of respect. I thought that was a beautiful thing from this man, you know. He said, that's all I knew how to do. I, I think this guy, this young lieutenant, manifested these three kinds of courage that we've been talking about. Tremendous warrior courage, actually. True warrior courage, that kind of spiritual warriorship you were talking about, the steadfastness. And then this incredible heart, you know, and also this vulnerability, you know. Um, you know that the army actually changed their protocols and manuals based on this one man's uh, activity. Yeah, they went back and they realized that their the, their methods for crowd control were not effective because of this one man taking this courageous act. Yeah. He was just an ordinary guy trying to meet the circumstance in the best way he knew how. Aren't we? So, uh, shall we hear from some of the people? I think that'd here? be a good idea. And, um, uh, do you, you have, have a microphone? microphone? Yeah, it'll go around. And oh, wonderful. Thank some you. more lights, not directly on us, might be pleasant. Well, I, I'd like to know, we'd like to know, you know, what's on your hearts and minds as we think about this subject of courage. And it may, may or may not have to do with being with dying, but. Um, it may just be the courage of your everyday life, you know. How does courage show up in your life, you know? Or what, f what gets in the way of it, you know? What do you notice gets in the way of it? So let's see what's uh, on your hearts and minds. It doesn't have to be on that, but raise your hand, and then we'll get you a microphone. You know, whenever we come to this juncture in the, in the event, I always think, I, you know, Harvard always gets blamed for really all the studies in the world, you know, good or bad, you know. And there's a famous one that they did that you probably all know about, which is that they tried to look at people's great fears, and fear of dying came in way behind fear of speaking in public. <laughs> so if you want to practice dying, you know, getting ready for it, this is it. Get this the is, microphone. <laughs> this is how you do it. Ask for the microphone. We got somebody up there? Okay, great. Well, first of all, thank you for your stories and for mm -hmm. holding the space. Um, I guess I want to know a little bit more about, maybe it seems obvious, but why we fear death so much mm -hmm. and what seems to be a pathway to calm that. Mm -hmm. um, I've worked with people that just are so afraid of it their response is to just not even deal with it. Yeah. And yet there's a desire, a deep desire to want a way in to begin to have a conversation. Mm -hmm. You know, the fear is so great. Mm. It, it just what I'm saying makes sense. Yeah. So I just wondered if there was a, a key or a, a touchstone or a way, an entry, you know, of course the breath, but... Needs a little bit more practical, <laughs> or something. Please start. All right. Uh, 
Oh, you know, it, it goes back to what Sharon was saying about our conditioning, you know, that we've got a whole culture that's encouraging us to run in the other direction, you know, away from that which frightens us. So let me ask you a question, if I may. Can we still give her the microphone? Sure. Because so, I want to... So, do you ever get afraid? Oh, yeah. You do? Yeah. And do you, do you know you're afraid? Yes. Well, how do you know? Well, tell me how you know. Well, for me, it's in my body. Okay. How, what, what do you experience when you're in your body? I experience it in my voice. Uh-huh. I think of my posture, my walk, and my voice. Uh-huh. All of those things change. Uh-huh. And, and so your, your voice changes. Perhaps it trembles a little bit. Mm-hmm. And your posture, what happens with your posture? I kind of go in uh-huh. So there's some bit. kind of collapsing in in some way. Okay. And then I feel heat. Heat. I okay. feel a warming. Beautiful. Well, that's, first of all, it's great that you have that much familiarity with it because it means you can recognize it in its arising before it's in full-blown panic, right? Mm-hmm. So that's really a great asset for you. But also, I want to just orient you to the fact that you know you're afraid. And the part of you that knows you're afraid is not afraid. Mm-hmm. And it's not just semantics. You can orient to that part of you that's aware of your fear, that knows you're afraid, or you can function from the fear. You get to choose. Once you recognize that, once you make that distinction, yeah, you can really choose. You can say, oh, oh, I don't have to just do my knee-jerk reaction here. Mm-hmm. The fact that I'm aware gives me another option, gives me another choice. Yeah? So that's the first thing that we might realize that. So even when we come to the conversation with someone, that might be helpful to remember, yeah. right, for ourselves. The other thing that I would encourage us to look at is look at the way you meet endings. You know, the end of a sentence, the end of a meal, the end of a relationship, you know, the end of a day. How do you meet endings? Yeah. I don't have any moral judgment about how you should do that, but I think there's a kind of um, momentum to our habits. And really looking at our habit around endings is a really good way to understand something about our relationship with dying. How do you leave a party? When, you, when, you, when you're at your friend's house, you go to a party, do you just ghost out and think nobody's going to notice if you're gone? You know? mm-hmm. Or do you say goodbye to people? Mm-hmm. You know? I, I think that this is a really wonderful way to begin to practice and recognize that death is not something that just happens at the end of a long road or at the end of a cancer or some other <laughs> illness. But that it's with us all the time. It's in the very marrow of this moment. Yeah. Beautiful. So, um, and then when we're talking to someone else about it, if you're not so afraid, you know, people are hungry to talk about this, actually. It's just that they need to talk about it with somebody who's not so afraid. Mm-hmm. afraid not, not that you're not afraid of death. You're not afraid of talking about it, at mm-hmm. least. So those are three things that I can imagine might be, might be useful. Sharon's much wiser than me, and so she might have more hardly, to add. Hardly, but you reminded me of uh, when uh, Jack Cornfield and Joseph Goldstein and I used to uh, teach a lot in places. It was before uh, we had the Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts and Spirit Rock Center in California, and so we'd just be in these rented facilities uh, for, say, 10 days, and then at the end of 10 days, everything would disperse, you know? Mm. So it was like a universe 
getting created and then getting destroyed. Mm. And Jack and I have completely different reactions to the endings of things. Mm. I don't know about now, but this was, you know, a long, long time ago. Mm. And I would say, let's stay for lunch. Let's not leave quite yet. <laughs> Maybe there'll be a couple of people still around, you know. And he'd say, we got to get out of here. <laughs> you know, like, we're already too late. Let's get out. Yeah. So, I used to think, boy, we're different. Yeah. You know? and it's yeah. very funny. And I, I have a somewhat um, esoteric, perhaps weird reason to be afraid of dying, uh, which came out. I recently visited a friend who was dying. She's still alive, to at least my surprise. But um, she's in hospice. Mm-hmm. And uh, she's a beautiful person. She's, uh, well, next week, maybe that's why she's still alive. She'll be 92. So she has a birthday coming. So um, uh, she's been an incredible person, you know, in her life and incredibly generous and kind and caring. And so she's in this hospice and I went to see her and she said, you know, I just, when I'm not asleep, I look out the window and she said, I'm content. And she said, when I get afraid to die, I say to myself, well, it's happening, (laughs) you know. And I said, oh, that's interesting. When I get afraid to die, I realize uh, I know it's just a belief system, and you may not share this belief, but I do believe in rebirth. So when I get afraid to die, I say, you've done this before. (laughs) Because I realize I'm afraid of making a mistake. You know, I'm afraid of doing it wrong. And... I think you've done this. You've done this so many times. Like, just relax, you know? Like, just do it, you know? And she laughed, you know? It was like a very funny moment. I hadn't known. Uh, I, was, I was the last person outside of the family who was able to see her. She had asked to see me, and I was in some other state, you know? And I flew back and went to see her. And then um, uh, she was uh, much more cogent than I had expected. No, you know, I didn't know what to expect, really, but uh, she was really funny. We just laughed and said, do you believe in rebirth? And I said, yeah, I really do. Mm. And she said, you know, I never used to think about it, but now I think I kind of do, too. (laughs) Hedging her bets, maybe. Yeah. 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 All right, what else is on your hearts and minds? Who's got the mic? John, there's somebody down front here. I don't know if somebody's there. Okay, great. For you? Yeah. Yeah. I uh, I lost my grandfather earlier this year, and I lost uh. my uncle last year, so there's been just a lot of death in my life in the past year. Uh-huh. And one thing that I think is a feature, a bug of the modern world, is that there's an inherent scarcity that all of this abundance of information, of plans, it's almost as if seconds matter more than ever, and it can make it hard to mourn in the proper way. And I remember when I was being raised in the Jewish tradition, so much of Judaism was about spending a year mourning and reflecting. And now it's sometimes hard to even spend an hour doing that. And I I wasn't able to give my uncle's death or my grandfather's death the mourning that they deserved. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of that is because I am, you know, far away from my family the the constraints that the modern world poses and i want to hear what you guys have to say about mourning and modernity i mean i think that's fantastic as an assessment you know i think it's really true and uh 
you know, given the pressure um, to kind of get over it or, or just be, you know, hop to and like, um, you really need to, I guess we all need to just carve out the time we need, even if it's private, even if it's alone, you know. Um, and there are bound to be some friends, you know, or some people who would want to share that with us, even if it's, you know, six months old or a year old or, or whatever. Um, I always think of this woman who came to see me uh, in a state of enormous distress. She'd had this uh, tremendously traumatic loss about six months before. And um, she said to me, my friends are kind of impatient with me. It's like, all right, you know, six months is, you know, six months. It's like, get over it. And believe me, this was not a six-month problem um, or incident. And so, and then she said, uh, my friends all have golden lives. Nothing ever goes wrong for them, which I didn't believe for a moment, but that's the presentation, you know, like my friends all have golden lives. And so now I am the symbol for them of life gone awry and I make them very uncomfortable. And I had one of those experiences, you know, where you just hear like these words come out of your mouth. And what I heard come out of my mouth was, I think you need new friends. <laughs> And then I said, you should meet my friends. They're all a wreck, you know, like <laughs> they're all falling apart. I mean, just to say, you know, and since I have some in the room, not that you're really all a wreck, but, you know, there's a vulnerability and honesty, you know, that says this still hurts, you know. Yeah. I'm having a hard time or, I, you know, I find myself really thinking a lot about uh, this person and the joys or the sorrows or the regrets or whatever. Um, and, you know, if there's somebody, anybody that you really can be that truthful with, I think it's a great thing. And if there's not, you can do it. You know, you just have to make the time to do it. Hmm. Here. Just there. Raise your hand again. There you are. Okay. Thank you. Um, I really appreciate you talking about the school shootings. And I'm thinking about the kinds of shootings that uh, that are that happen in our country, particularly for young black men. Okay. I mentor some of those young men, and so I'm not sure how to talk about courage and how to support them in not being afraid of death within the context of what's happening. And as and as I listen to that whatever their death is, if, if I could support them in more peace until it happens for whatever circumstances, I'd appreciate some help on that. Oh, boy, you know. You know, the uh, Guardian newspaper in England did an incredible series called The Counted. And... Um, they documented 1,200 deaths in the United States in one year from police-related shootings. Most of those people were young black men. In England, in, in the last 40 years, they've had 50 deaths from police-related or police-related deaths. In America, we had 50 deaths in the first month. So I don't know that I have an answer for this for you. Every mother, every, every black mother I know is 
and father are teaching their children how to be who they are and to be careful. And that's both extraordinary that they're doing that and horrible that they have to do that. Yeah. You know, I'm going to refer back to Sharon's comment about vulnerability as honesty. To be really truthful and honest is a way to recognize and help them recognize the courage that may live within them. Yeah. That, w- that, it, that in and of itself won't protect them. But it gives them some capacity to meet what's impossible. You know, when we started the Zen Hospice in San Francisco, we worked mostly with people living on the streets. And and I said that what we learned to do was to turn toward what's impossible. Because the suffering, we would never be able to manage all the suffering that was there. But we learned to turn toward what was impossible. Yeah. And just that, just that action was was what we could do. And when we could do more, we would do more. So I wish I had a clear-cut answer for you. I wish you had one from me. (laughs) Turn toward. Sometimes that's the best we can do. You know, we're always running in the other direction. And then suffering comes and whacks us in the back of the head, you know, in whatever form that suffering is. How did we get here? How did we get here? This woman in the second row has been very patient waiting for us. Thank you. Thank thank you. I have a plane ride in just a few hours. Oh, that... maybe you'll meet Roshi. <laughs> <laughs> well, I if schedule... you see her monitoring the airport, tell her to come over. <laughs> maybe. I hope so. I, I scheduled it um, be, in order to see uh, see you, Frank. Uh, oh. My mother is 93 oh. in Berkeley, California. Oh, oh wow. And uh, she's still a hippie, but she is... Um, <laughs> They last forever, those hips. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, look at Keith Richards. Yeah. <laughs> right. But uh, she is dying. Uh, she's um, in very, uh, very bad physical condition, uh, without a, z- a disease, but lots of yeah. frailty. And, um, but she's mentally sharp. Mm-hmm. Uh, she has hospice now. Um, she, we've, we've had a very difficult um, time but things are better now it's all love I've been, but i'm not with her often i'm going to be with her for 10 days and she's frightened mm-hmm. um i want to help calm her mm-hmm. <laughs> so that right there why is this happening right here for you right now that tenderness that's starting to come up on you as you even think about being in that situation with your mother and that you want to give your mother something, that's going to help you, and it's going to help her. Because it's real. It's the honesty that Sharon's talking about, the tenderness that's there for you right now. 
You can feel it, yeah? Yes. Yeah, don't go away from it. Don't talk over it. Let it really show you. You can trust your good heart to be a reliable guide. You can really have confidence in your innate kindness. And when you have that, when you, when you bring that tenderness forward, the fragility even that you feel, that tenderness, you can be, you know, I always say what's needed is one calm person in the room, you know? Because it, it's crazy. It can be chaotic around dying. And one calm person in the room can make all the difference, right? You, you're going to lend your mother your back. You're going to help move her from the bed to the commode. You can do that well, I'm sure. A lot of diapers. A lot of diapers. There's all of that. But you know, you can also lend her the stability of your mind. And you can open your heart in such a way that it might encourage her to open hers too. Now, you can't set that up as an as a anticipated outcome. But you can model it. You can be that. And then you become a true refuge for somebody else. And when we're dying, we need a refuge. We need to be able to lean into something that's stable. Because the dying process is stripping away all the ways we've defined ourselves. I'm a mother, I'm a father, I'm a grandmother, whatever it is. All those are being stripped away by dying or gracefully given up, but they're all going. Then we get down to something much more essential and true in us, but it's usually unfamiliar to us, and so it scares us. Yeah? Yes. That's what scares us. Yes, it's not just the dying, and it's not just the pain. It's that, who will I be mm. when, all these, when I'm not this anymore? Mm. And so when somebody's in the room who's willing to be with that, just willing to be with it, they don't have to have the answers, yeah, then that is a salve. That's a healing presence. And please, I, I really want to encourage you not to underestimate the power of simple human presence. You can do that. You can do that. That lives in you. And it will require the honesty that Sharon's been talking about. Yeah. But you can do it. Okay? Okay. Thank you, Frank. Welcome. Sharon, would you, um, do you have any comments in, in response to the uh, questions that the last woman about raised about the young black, black men? Yeah. Uh, you know, my mind went to spaces, I mean, I too know uh, many, many parents of color who have that conversation with their kids, but my mind went to um, instilling a sense, helping instill a sense within uh, young people of color, apart from this terrible issue of violence and, you know, being careful and and the police and so on, but just not t not believing the stories told about them. Mm. You know, having a different sense of who they are than that constructed, mm. manufactured sense that's so easy to absorb mm. and kind of take on. And um, you know, the ways people who are being harmed work against that is by believing they're worth more than that. And I don't think it's up to them, you know, those kids, to change this entire system of violence. But to the degree that their actions and their life, their very life, mm. 
can be lived with that sort of confidence, you know, and self-respect. I think that's that's where my mind went. You know, that's a path. Yeah, that's good. Um, I'm concerned that so much of hospice and palliative care focuses on the quality of life, <laughs> that there are legacies and how do we, how can we help people to focus more on the quality of dying, <laughs> the art of dying? Mm -hmm. Well, the two are kind of a package deal, mm -hmm. living and dying. You don't get one without the other, right? Right. I understand that, but the one is such an emphasis. Yeah. And, well, well part, of the, part of the challenge, I would say, is that people oftentimes don't find themselves into a hospice or palliative care program until it's very late in the game, until they're a few weeks from death oftentimes. Mm -hmm. That's the average length of stay in an American hospice is 14 days. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's ludicrous, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, to imagine that at the time of our dying, we will have the physical strength, the mental stability, the emotional clarity to do the work mm -hmm. of a lifetime is a mm -hmm. ridiculous gamble. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we need, I think, to work on this and prepare for this more often. This is why so many of the you know, wisdom traditions remind us to keep death as our advisor in one way or another. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yes, oftentimes we're so busy trying to manage the experience, mm -hmm. we're not willing to see what the experience can show us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I think uh, one of the things that's helpful, at least the work that I try to do with people, is to actually be with them and find out what's going on for them. Uh, Marion Woodman just died this, this, uh, this month of July, wonderful feminist psychologist. And she and I had a conversation some years ago about a patient that she worked with who she came in to see who was in a kind of semi-comatose state. And Marion just stayed with her. Whenever the woman would moan, Marion would moan. Mm -hmm. And when the woman would take a sigh, she would sigh. Mm -hmm. And she'd exacerbate it a little bit, you know, enhance it a little bit. And finally, this woman woke up and she said to Marion, oh, I've had the most wonderful dreams about dying. Let me tell you about them. And the nurse came in the room and she scolded Marion. She said, we had her all nice and calm and now you've stirred her all up. And she said, I didn't stir her up at all, you know. And, and so then Marion and the woman who had been one of her clients actually had this extraordinary conversation about preparing for her death and her dreams in this semi-comatose state, we're actually doing that. Uh -huh. So I think, uh, first of all, we, it would be really wise for us to study the dreams of dying people a lot more closely, yeah? Uh -huh. And to see what actually happens for people in this process. It's not, it's totally trustworthy. Uh -huh. Dying is conducive, the conditions of dying are conducive to our waking up, uh -huh. to, uh -huh. our, to our growing, transforming. Uh -huh. yeah? uh -huh absolutely reliable yeah mm -hmm. but when we're you know when we treat it as the enemy and or even we try to quell it in some way mm -hmm. we may not notice that the possibility for transformation that exists there mm -hmm. i mean the great american dream is she died in her sleep mm -hmm. if possible i don't want to sleep through my dying no i know I, I hope so much that i can experience my dying. oh well i hope that's so for you then mm -hmm. i hope that's so for you then yeah. yeah, yeah, but you know, it's you can do it now. You can do it now. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. My question is actually about the caregiver. So you've you've spoken a lot about yes. the patient, and what arrives for me is when the caregiver is steady or goes towards, and the patient wants to go away. And mm-hmm. how do you kind of meet somebody who might be in denial of aging or death and dying? And you, as the caregiver, is is the loving witness and is sort of participating in this process and really wants to be present but is is coming up against so much resistance and how do you kind of meet that you want to be present or you want them to see it in a particular way it's a great question uh probably a little of both uh-huh yeah well that's important to sort yeah of course right yeah. um you know, because there is a one way we can be with someone and not necessarily have an agenda for them about how they should go through this process, yeah? Um, this denial word, it's thrown around a lot. I mean, I think it's an actually really skillful psychological tool that we have. I mean, basically says, I'm not ready to deal with that yet. Yeah? And that's actually really, that's wisdom, actually. There's wisdom in that. I'm not ready, I don't have what I need to deal with that yet. Yeah? So that when someone is in that place, rather than trying to, you know, leverage them out of it with a crowbar, I, I realize, oh, what they really need is a lot of holding in some way, some kind of real holding so that they can feel safe. Yeah? And then when they feel safe enough, it's like, are you a mom? I'm not. Oh, well, you don't have to be a mom to, to understand this. I, I just was curious. I mean, I think about, I have a granddaughter now who's three years old. And when she was first learning to walk, she would stumble out and fall down. That's all kids do. But her mom, could be the mothering person, doesn't have to be a mother, would scoop her up and hold her. And when she held her, she relaxed, and then she could go. I noticed she went a little further each time when she was walking, my granddaughter. And I think it's like that with us, you know, as human beings, with ourselves and each other. We can be, awareness can be a holding environment for us that will allow us to feel the safety, the security, the stability that we need then to open up to dimensions of our life that we didn't think we were able to open up to. You know, we've been living in a limiting story or a limiting belief, and awareness can help us to go beyond that. The same is true of people at, at the kind of stage of life that you're speaking about, you know? So I, I don't know how people should die. I used to think I did. And then I had a heart attack, and I realized I didn't know anything about it, you know? So I'm much, I know a lot less now, which is a much better thing, actually. So uh, I don't have a lot of agendas for people. I, I, uh, what I'm hearing then really is for the caregiver, the way to be with it is, is to be in a place of, of little expectation. Comes back to that helps. That helps enormously. And, you know, to really keep, as, as Sharon's been help guiding us, to really keep coming back to our own experience, seeing what's happening here, and, and attending to that. Basically, instead of, you know, with empathy, one of the, the natural empathetic response is someone's hurting and we want to reach out and take care of them. That's natural. But there's another motivation that happens too, which is when we get empathetically overloaded, like what Roshi was talking about, about pathological altruism, what happens is we start acting on other people to relieve our own distress. Yeah. And sometimes people get a little too much chemotherapy because of that. Or sometimes they get a little too much advice because of that. Or sometimes they get too much chicken soup because of that. Yeah. 
So we want to really watch our own, what we're, what we're managing in, in a situation like this. Yeah. It's a really honest question. Thank you. Really honest question. Yeah. Um, so I have the mic. Uh, oh, okay. Where are you? There you are. Thank yeah. you. Sorry, I I'm, see. I'm visiting somebody that's in a hospice, and um, I guess it was last summer he sent me an email and said he had brain cancer. And it was very hard for me to, um, well, I was denying that he had brain cancer and that he was going to die. And so now he's in a hospice and I do go see him and he's, I mean, he's still alive. And I thought he was going to die like three weeks ago. And um, I, what you said about dreams was very interesting. I don't know whether, he seems to be talking more now and... I don't know what that means, but uh, I mean, there's more of a conversation, and I, I don't know whether I, would it be helpful for me to ask him about his dreams, or should I just do what I'm doing, which is just talking to him, really, and just being there, you know? Um, you know, I, I don't know the nature of your relationship with him and some of the other details, so I'm cautious about giving well, too much he was, counsel. Well, he was my boss, Okay, and he's now become... He's not my boss anymore. He's right. become a child, yeah. and it's it's just a totally different territory of a relationship. I mean, it's just very warm, which is really okay. weird. But you know, so that's. I'm going to suggest actually that we maybe make this the last question, and six minutes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Why don't we just do that, yeah. and people can talk exactly. to her. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So. Let me just respond, and maybe Sharon wants to. Do you want to respond to this? Oh, well, why don't you start, and okay. then I will. So um, when people, it sounds like this man has brain cancer, and he might be a little confused, or he might be, di might be difficult for him to communicate in a way that he normally communicated. Sounds like. Am I accurate in that? Well, he seemed to be communicating pretty well yesterday, which oh, is surprising. Okay. Maybe I misunderstood you know. then. Okay. okay. Uh, you know, I, I think you can be curious is what I think you can be. Okay. As long as it doesn't have a leading agenda. Yeah. I mean, I'm curious with people. I, I ask really, you know, pointed questions sometimes. You know, like, what do you think is going to happen after you die? I ask this question of just about everybody I've worked with. And they tell me some amazing things. Now, I don't start out with that question usually. Right. But, you know, you have, to, you have to assess the situation in a way and see, maybe he just wants to talk about the weather or what was on TV last night. Or maybe he wants to talk about his dreams. Or it depends on the nature of your relationship with him and what's going on. So that's the, just context, okay? Okay. Um, then the one thing that, can, that gets in our way is that we see the person as a dying person. Okay. And we stop treating them like a normal human a being. A living, right. Dying, they aren't a dying person. There are no dying people. You know, dying is something that they're going through. But that isn't their whole identity. And people can't be dying 24 hours a day. Right. You know, sometimes they just need something else, you know, in, in the situation. So feel it out a little bit and sort of see, you know, you let your curiosity be your guide here, you know, and um, have a sense of wonder about your relationship with him, what's going on. There's no right way. There's no. I'm sorry, no what? No right way. Oh, right. right. Okay. Thank you. All right. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with that and just add. Uh, just as I, you know, describe myself as reminding myself, don't be afraid of making a mistake in dying. <laughs> I wouldn't be that afraid of making a mistake in sitting with somebody who's dying, except 
if you really have a big agenda. Yeah. You know, which I think even that, you know, somebody would say, well, I'm dying, so what? But, you know, but I think there is, uh, then we're trying to be in control of a situation that we really can't control. I want this to be pleasant. I want you to, I mean, one of my fears also about dying, because all my friends have read, you know, Tibetan Book of Living and Dying and all those <laughs> books. And, you know, you're supposed to talk loudly, you know, and things like that, you know. I have this I have this fear that I'm going to be in bed, unable to speak, and people are going to be shouting at me, go to the light. And I just want to say, shut up, you know? You go to the damn you light. Go, I'm doing this at my own pace. Like, you quiet, you know? But I'm not going to be able to. So, you know, I mean, it would be horrific to get a lecture at that moment. You know? Like, it's all right, you know? Like, I'm okay. Like... I think it's it's important that we look at our own expectations and um, frustrations and mm. wish to kind of contour the experience for someone else uh, because that's not really a generous thing and mm. certainly not in that circumstance. And so um, there's a lot to look at. But short of that, uh, I think it's just being there and your intuition will, will guide you. So I, I want to just say thank you to everybody for being here this evening. I particularly thank you to Sharon for, for sharing this. This was really fun to do together with you. Thank you all very much. Thank you for listening. For more information about Sharon's many offerings and her ongoing teaching schedule, please visit her website at SharonSalzberg.com. <laughs>